Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John and the Epistle of the Romans. In addition to your own Bible, you may find it on the back side of your message notes or beginning on page 762 in your worship Bible. Please follow along as I read. From John 5:24, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And now on to verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I, did not, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. This is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now from Romans 15, 1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with, Jesus, with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of God. If you were a very careful reader or listener of the scriptures as Cheryl read them for you, you would have noticed that there was one small phrase that was repeated in each of the two texts that we read. Those, the, there was a reference in, in both of these scriptures to the scriptures. In John chapter 5, the Lord Jesus says in verse 39, you search the scriptures, excuse me, the, my voice must be changing, that you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. You search the scriptures. And in the Romans chat passage, Romans 15 and verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and, uh, and encouragement through the, scripture, through the scriptures, we might have hope. In these two very different books, there is reference made to something called the scriptures. In the one case, Jesus is speaking to people who are very well versed in the scriptures, the, the Hebrew Bible. He was speaking primarily to Jewish spiritual and religious leaders known as Pharisees or Sadducees. They were students, devout students of the scriptures. But Jesus was castigating them because he said they thought they believed in the scriptures, but in fact they really didn't because they had missed the main point of the scriptures. We'll talk about that in a bit. 
did it. And in the second book, the apostle Paul, who's writing about 20 years after Jesus died and rose from the dead, is writing to a church that's in the, t- in the city of Rome where he had never yet been, describing his whole view of the story of Jesus. He speaks about the Old Testament, the Scriptures. He's saying that the Scriptures were given to us, that the, uh, the, uh, use, uh, they were given to us so that we might be able to have hope. I thought it'd be good for us while we're in the third of our four-part series called Living Witnesses, wherein we take a look at our overall uh, objectives as a church. We'll finish it out next week. That we would take a look at this very simple idea. What are the scriptures? Why are they important? How do they matter to me? And what am I supposed to get out of them? Some of you will know that we have been a part of what we've called the Daily Bread Project for a good six or seven months now, where we as a church family have been reading through the whole of the Scriptures. In fact, just yesterday, if you have been tracking along with us, you got a a chance to read this 15th chapter of Romans just a day or two this week. Uh, That's one reason I want to include it. Uh, And you also got a chance yesterday to read one of the most famous Psalms in the Bible, Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with morose and sad hearts. Well, that's not exactly how it goes, is it? Some of you remember. Come into his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God, and is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. One of the great Psalms I remember when I was in second grade, Grandma Price, she wasn't my grandma, we called her grandma, Grandma Price said, I want you to memorize Psalm 100, and so I did, and I've never forgotten it ever since. Never underestimate the value of teaching the Scriptures to your children, okay? So in any case, we have this idea of the Scriptures. Why are they important? How do we learn from them? Well, it's a very big topic, and we only have a short period of time. So what I wanted to do was to take a look at these two little vignettes, these two little stories, and, and, and from them discern some things that will help us as we evaluate the Scriptures. Now, I know that in today's age, we often think that the only thing worthwhile is something which is brand new, right? It was written yesterday. It's fresh. It's contemporary. But oftentimes, you might discover that the most worthwhile things are the things which are old. Right, old people? (laughs) The most worthwhile things are the things which have stood the test of time. And for the full 2,000 years of the Christian church, we have depended and built our whole way of thinking on these scriptures. And in many ways, the whole Western way of looking at the world, both secular and religious, has been directly influenced by the teachings in the scriptures. Governments have been formed that way. Uh, Social polys have been formed in in response to what the Scriptures teach. We are, even if we don't believe in the Scriptures, we are the recipients of a vast heritage of life built upon the truths in the Scriptures. So let's take a minute, and hopefully I'll be quick and get done before the Packers start to play. (laughs) And we'll talk about some things about the Scriptures that we can discover in this text. There's so much that could be said. I can only say a few things in the time that we have. First of all, I want to talk to you about what this text teaches you, first of all, about the goal of the Scriptures. You can jot this down in your message notes of your life. The goal of the Scriptures. What is it? Well, the goal of the Scriptures is life. 
The goal of the Scriptures is life. That is to say that the Scriptures' purpose is to ultimately explain to us about the world so that we can discover how life is really meant to be lived. The Scriptures teach us this great story, which some of you already know, about this beautiful world, broken by human rebellion, rescued by God and Jesus Christ, and ultimately being renewed through the work of His Holy Spirit. That the world is not here by accident, but by design. That there is an inherent purpose and goal and direction to the world. The, the biblical view of, the, of, the, of time is not an endless circle that goes around and around and around, as all ancient cultures believed, other than the Judeo-Christian culture, all of them believed that it was the miracle of God reaching out to Abraham that one day and saying, I have a goal and a purpose that through you I will bless the whole world that gave to us the whole idea of history itself, of life moving somewhere. It began to influence the whole world. So the goal of the Scriptures, in, as Jesus is talking about it here, is to make sure that we understand eternal life. Now, when you hear eternal life, you tend to think about only a small portion of what that means. Yes, it's true that the Scriptures want to teach you how to e e enjoy life eternally as if it's somewhere away. But that's not really the full intent of this world, this Word. This Word is speaking about uh, eternal life, true life, life that begins right now, right here. The sense of the Scriptures is that we are all living less than the full human lives God intended us to have. And the Scriptures come to fix us so that we can be the fully, truly human beings that God wants us to be. And ultimately, that will mean that post-mortem, we will spend life with Jesus forever. Ultimately, it does mean that. But it begins here and now. So look what Jesus is. I know I'm speaking fast, but there's a lot I want to say. The, what Jesus has said in, the, in this text, he is talking to religious people, devout students of Scripture in John chapter 5. And he's frustrated with them because they've missed the big point. They've missed the big picture of the Scriptures. And they don't realize that it's all really about life. It's, I picked out verse 24. This whole passage talks about it. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, that's the Scriptures, hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Life. He didn't, he's not, not that he will pass from death to life, but that he has passed from death to life. In other words, if you hear my words and believe in the God who sent me, that act of believing will transfer you from a position of deadness to a position of Lifeness. Just like when my poor uh, second grade son came home from a, with a, was it second or third grade? I don't remember, Donna. Came home with a note from the nurse. I think it was third grade. Your son needs glasses. <laughs> you know, they do the eye test. And we, uh, we just didn't realize it, or we maybe just didn't want to pay attention, but he, did, he needed glasses. And so we took him to get his glasses. And when, we, when he put those glasses on, uh, I, I said, Kurt, how do you like it? He says, well, it's cool because the trees have leaves on them now. He wasn't seeing true life. And a lot of you know what I'm talking about. When you were just living your own way and thinking about everything you heard by Dr. Phil or Oprah or whoever else and whoever else said, you were living a dim view of life. 
But when you began to understand this bigger story about a God who had made you, who had given you freedom, who had rescued you by his grace, this big story, and you placed your faith in that Jesus, it's like, oh, the trees have leaves on them. In fact, the Bible itself tells a story something like that in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus is going to heal a man who's blind. He can't see. And he heals the man. He comes and he makes... He, uh, one of the great things about having church in the dirt is you have illustrations you can't make anywhere else. Jesus clean, uh, stepped down he, and he, he spit on the ground, the Bible says. This is in Mark 7 or 8. I don't remember exactly where. Um, uh, 9 or 10. I don't know. Somewhere. Gospel of Mark. Um, and, and, he, and, he, and he makes spittle on the ground and he puts it on the man's, on the man's eyes. He says, what do you see? He says, I see men like trees walking around, you know? And he does it again, and now he sees more clearly. You see, when the Scriptures, when the Word of God begins to place its roots in your heart, life begins to change. And that's why Jesus says they bring life. And it goes on to talk about it. It says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. In other words, you, you think you'll find eternal life, but as I will say a little bit later, they have missed the whole point of all of that. Scriptures come to teach us the truth about life. And let me ask you this honest question. Is there really a better manual for your life than the Scriptures? Is there? Wouldn't life be better if men and women really made lifelong commitments to one another and really had their children grow up and fit? Wouldn't life be better? Scriptures say that's the way it should be. Uh, we think it's better if we don't, you know, and of course God deals with us in the brokenness of our lives as well, so don't take this as judgment. But wouldn't life be better if we operated our business in a way to really serve the community instead of simply a way to get as much out of it as we can, right? Scriptures teach us that, right? Wouldn't life be better if there were no poor that are among us and we took care of those who are poor? Wouldn't life be better? Wouldn't life be better if we just followed the Ten Commandments, you know, not, uh, 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 not stealing, not coveting, uh, not lying, not murdering, right? Wouldn't life be better? Yes, the truth is we are much more human, much more alive when we follow the Scriptures. And so the Scriptures give to us some of the most fundamental answers to the, uh, the most, most uh, I, should, I don't want to say fundamental, I want to, the most honest answers to the fundamental questions of life. You heard me mention before that we have this eye view of life as going somewhere, not as in, an endless cycle of reincarnation that goes nowhere or ends up in simple nothingness, but a life that actually goes somewhere. Where did that idea come from? Where did it come from? Did some philosopher sit down and invent that idea? Were we born with that idea? That comes directly from the Bible. I could prove it to you if I had time. It's the result of the Judeo-Christian ethic infiltrating society. Why is it that we believe in the dignity of the human being? The Scriptures teach us that. You, one of the most dangerous questions for you to ask if you don't believe in the Bible is to ask the question, why, about everything that you believe. Why do you think life matters? <laughs> Why do you think people matter? Why do you think human rights matter? Why do you think there's right and wrong? Why do you think any of that? The Bible gives you really good answers for that because the Bible teaches us about a God separate from this universe who made this world and gave to it laws that make it function properly and who lives outside of it and will un someday remake this world. There's a so it's from the Scriptures we get the idea of the dignity of the human being. It's from the Scriptures we get the idea of respect 
for creation without worshiping creation. G.K. Chesterton said, creation, the world is not your mother. The world is your sister. You should respect her, right? It is from the Scriptures that we get belief in the orderliness of nature. And it was the Scriptures which gave the opportunity for true scientific inquiry. It was the Scriptures that tell us that we're not here by accident, but by design. It's the Scriptures that give us a sound basis for belief in a moral universe, not merely a, 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 a universe governed directly by the survival of the fittest. It is the Scriptures that give to us a sense that life has a purpose, that people matter. It is the Scriptures which are the solid guide for your life. I trust, I, I guarantee you, you follow the Scriptures, your life will be better. It won't be easier but it will be better, right? So the goal of the Scriptures is life. Uh, secondly, the focus of the Scriptures, the focus of the Scriptures is Jesus. The focus of the Scriptures is Jesus. I, I notice what it says here in that 39th verse, and I've printed some of this in there as well for you. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, Jesus is saying that the Scriptures... Now, when Jesus was alive, what were the Scriptures? Were they the Gospels, the Epistles, the New Testament? When Jesus was alive, the Scriptures were the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Malachi, their Hebrew Bible, which formed the basis for their society. And he says what about those Scriptures? He says, if you really read those Scriptures correctly, you will see they were always about me. That's a pretty outlandish statement, and yet that is exactly what Christianity teaches. Yes, that Jesus is the ultimate Moses. Jesus is the ultimate Abraham. Jesus is the ultimate David. Jesus is the ultimate uh, uh, Esther who, uh, who, who sacrificed herself for the sake of her people. Jesus is the one who fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament Scripture. That's why in the Gospel of Luke, you can look at this in Luke 24, when Jesus shows up uh, to those disciples who are discouraged by the side of the road, who had heard, who had seen Jesus die and heard he'd raised from the dead, but didn't know if it was true or not, it was on resurrection day, Jesus shows up from them, alongside of them. And in the midst of that walk, that long walk on a dusty road, the Bible says Jesus explained to them about himself from the Scriptures, from Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. So the ultimate focus of the Scriptures is Jesus. The scriptures are meant to point us to uh, uh, Jesus. Yes, the Scriptures teach us this story about, as I mentioned already, this world created by God, ruined by human rebellion, but rescued by God's grace and ultimately arriving in the person of a baby born in a manger who was none other than God in human form. That's the focus of Scriptures. It's Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you thirdly about the danger of Scriptures. The danger of Scriptures. The danger of Scriptures, and this is for those of you who have high regard for the Scripture. Listen carefully. The danger of Scriptures is idolatry. Idolatry. It is possible to worship the Scriptures and not the God who inspired those Scriptures. It is possible to be so focused on my own ideas and thoughts about the Scriptures and miss the Jesus about whom the Scriptures teach. That is exactly what happened to Jesus. It's exactly what happened to Him. Look at the story, all right? In, in the Gospel of John, 
we see that John, Jesus is talking to these religious leaders. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. He's living among them. They don't recognize him. They have gotten so accustomed to the way they think God is going to act, to the the interpretations that they have about Scripture, that when God himself showed up, they rejected him. How could that be? They had made an idol of their ideas. They worshiped their thoughts more than they worshiped their God. Here's what had happened specifically. On that same day of this conversation, there was a man lying by a pool who was waiting for something to happen so he could maybe get dumped in the pool and find a miracle. He'd been doing it for 37 years. Jesus shows and talks to him, and ultimately Jesus heals the man, all right? And the man is walking around. The problem is this happened on the Sabbath day. And the people of that day had very specific rules about what was and was not appropriate on the Sabbath day. And so they began to have this discussion. Here's, here's the, the predecessor to this story. It says, uh, um, and this was verse 16 of chapter 5, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Going on, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was uh, uh, calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They thought he was committing blasphemy by saying, my father is working, and so am I. So here are these people. This has been a troubling thing for me ever since I was in college when I first began to reflect on this, that there were these people who were more devout than I was, who practiced purity more than I did, who were more interested in holiness than even I was, people who knew the Scriptures, studied the Scriptures, believed in the Scriptures, even more than I did. And yet these were the very same people who said, away with him, away with him. That bothered me a lot when I was a college student. I thought, I don't want to make that mistake. I don't want to get so committed to everything I believe about the Scriptures that I miss the larger things God is doing and that I begin to X out people who might actually be my brothers and sisters and I'm treating them like enemies. If you've been around the church for a while, you know there are a lot of Christians who don't like each other, a lot of churches who don't like each other, a lot of preachers who don't like other preachers. They don't see everything exactly the right. And I decided a long time ago, I would not want to be that kind of person. So I came across a statement by Richard Baxter in the 18th century that became very famous. Some have heard it. It said this, in essential things unity, in non-essential things liberty, in all things charity. He was writing in the midst of lots of religious foment back in Britain hundreds of years ago. But I thought this was a great thing. In essential things, unity. We need to be united, if you're going to be a student of the Scripture, a follower of Jesus, about the things that really matter. We need to be committed to that. In non-essential things, liberty. We need to have grace for the fact that we don't know everything and allow there to be differences of opinion. It seemed to me 
that a devout students of Scripture have spent 2,000 years debating nuances of theology and still have differing points of view about some of those things, maybe we're not supposed to have it all figured out. Maybe it's okay to admit, I don't know exactly the answer to that question. Because there are challenges in the Scripture. You know, we see, the, we see on the one hand that Scripture teaches God's power and God's sovereignty. And we see on the other hand that Scripture teaches man's responsibility and man's freedom. From a philosophical point of view, those are tough to put together. If God is ultimately totally powerful, how free is man? Some of you who are theologians, you know where I'm getting at. We have whole denominations broken up over that very issue. I'm not denying that those are important questions. I'm just saying, the, the, let's not lose sight of the bigger picture. Let's not. So in our church, we're a non-denominational church. No, I'm not against denominations. Please don't misunderstand me. But that means, you know, we're going to allow for some freedom. If you disagree about some issues, that's okay. You don't have to believe everything exactly like us in non-essential things, charity. Over here, there's going to be a game going on, and there are going to be a lot of people very passionate. Some of you are already getting ready for that, about their team, and about their team beating another team, and about the referee making calls that they think are right, and about other teams in their division getting beat up by other teams, Right? And those are all important things. I love football, not as much as baseball, but I do like that as well. But the bottom line is, football is a game that all football fans share. There is no game without differences of teams. So you better be glad for other teams, or else you have no game. Scrimmages, I've done them, are not that much fun. They're just not that much fun. But when you have a real opponent that plays the same game, and you respect that opponent, even though maybe you disagree with them, now you've got something worthwhile. And yet sometimes football fans and baseball fans and sports fans forget about that. They think the enemy is the other fan who doesn't like the call, right? And terrible things happen when people lose sight of the bigger picture. Same is true with the Scriptures. I think that the greatest witness to the gospel is when Christians can unite together around the things that really matter and, and say, yeah, she's crazy. She's a Steeler fan, but we're sisters, right? She's a Packer fan. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, some of you. Yeah, I know. I got Say what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, we got this going right across the way here, exactly. You know, all of that sort of thing, and it's a good image of what the script. So, for us, we try to keep the essential things pretty, pretty minimal, you know. We believe, I, I often say it three ways. We believe in the authority and the inspiration of Scripture. That's what we believe in. It's our basis. We may argue about what those terms mean. That's okay. We all believe in the authority and inspiration of Scripture. That is to say, it's normative for our lives, even today, and it comes from God Himself. We believe also in the incarnation and resurrection of Jesus. Incarnation means Jesus was both human and divine. He was not sort of human, sort of divine. He was not God-like or human-like. He was fully God, fully man, very God, very man. It's a mystery but that's what we believe. That's what all Christians truly believe. And we believe this same Jesus gave his life on a cross and was raised bodily from the dead. Resurrection of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And we believe, thirdly, in the reality 
of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. That the ultimate story of Christianity is about a God who has rescued us and to whom we've responded in grace. You know, we, we, we believe that God has offered that as a free gift. Even John 5, 24, whoever hears these words of mine and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and is not condemned and is crossed over from death to life. That all those who have made that are our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we want to welcome them. And uh, so those are the main things. We, leave lot, we like to leave lots of freedom. Some of you were baptized as babies. Some of you were baptized as adults. Christians argue about that forever. That's okay. You know, some of you are Calvinists, and some of you are Arminians, and that's okay. You know, uh, some of you are charismatic, and some of you are sensationist, and that's okay. Some of you are one thing, some of you are, that's okay. Some of you don't know what any of this stuff means. That's okay. You know. But if you make it your own personal campaign to make everybody see those issues exactly like you do, that's not okay. Go find a church where they teach that. You know? Welcome. Let's be unified together. I, I'm running, am I running out of time? I'll get going here. All right. Oh, my goodness. The danger of the Scriptures is idolatry, and I've kind of headed into my final point with what I've just started to say, which is this. <laughs> the, result of the, the result of the Scriptures is hope and harmony. Hope and harmony. And here we move into the 15th chapter of Romans, which had a more time I could develop more clearly. And some of you Bible students will maybe want to look at the larger context of both of these texts that I've looked at. But in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul has been painting this grandiose picture of God's story of rescue. And out of that then, he begins to let us know that the fundamental way that God's story of rescue is seen in this world, catch this, is through the community that results in faith to God's rescue. The primary way that the world will see the truth of God's story of rescue is because the world begins to see a different kind of community develop, a community that is divided beyond racial lines, beyond ethnic lines, beyond economic lines, a, com a community of people who have found together a new identity, we might even say a new life, in Jesus Christ. Uh, this is how the world will know that the story, the gospel story, is true. Not merely by preaching it and telling it, but by letting people see it and hear it and feel it like the music that comes and makes the text so live alive. You know what I'm saying, Margaret, right? The music makes, uh, makes our text live life. And so look at uh, Romans 15. In the, in the book of Romans, and he does this beginning the middle of the 13th chapter. I picked it up at the end. He's talking about this incredible community that begins to develop. Read it, 14 to 10. But it's a community that requires a lot of love and grace because when you put people of different backgrounds together, different economic levels, different educational levels, different ethnic backgrounds, different, uh, uh, different religious backgrounds, you're going to have a big mess of things. You better figure it out. So the Apostle Paul is writing about a particular problem that had existed in that church in Rome that had to do with whether it was right to eat certain kinds of foods or not. That's what the 14th chapter is about. Paul had some very specific opinions about what was right and what was wrong. But he had a bigger opinion about how we are supposed to treat those who feel differently than us. 
And he says, I will not do something to harm my brother as long as I live. I won't do that. And that's why at the close of this, let me just quickly, in the 15th chapter, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former times were written for our instruction, so that through the endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with our, one another in one accord with Christ Jesus so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The result of the Scriptures is unity and harmony. And that only comes when you're willing to subject your own opinion to those who are around you. We're gonna, in a few minutes, we're going to have a quartet sing some beautiful harmonies together. It will be as beautiful as they unite their different voices together in a pleasing fashion. That's the only way it gets, am I right? <laughs> Good luck with that. I like the pressure. That's what I love. Harmony assumes difference. Harmony is not unison. Unison has its own beauty, but there's something beautiful about different notes being put together in a pleasing fashion. That's the result of the Scriptures. The Scriptures don't come to make us isolated and insulated, but rather to become people of hope in a world looking for hope. People of harmony in a world incredibly divided. So here at this church, we make no apology for placing our faith in this ancient, ancient Scripture. We believe it is the way to have true life. It is the way to see Jesus. It is the way to avoid, if we are careful, we can avoid the idolatry of worshiping our ideas more than the God who gave them to us, and we can then become a community of hope in the beautiful, in the beautiful environment that God has given to us. Let's have prayer as we close. Father, I'm grateful and thankful that you have given to us these words so that through them we could experience hope. I want to thank you that in the midst of this chaotic world, divided world, often hopeless world, that we can discover from you that we can become a people of hope and harmony. Help us to treat our differences like we treat them with our brothers and sisters, that we begin to love them even when we disagree with them. But help us to affirm the truth of Scripture. Thank you for Jesus. We celebrate Him today in His name. Amen. Amen.